This morning's Bible reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. You can follow along on the screen or in the church Bibles. In the church Bibles, it's on page 1126. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because, of your, fa- because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing and doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, good morning once again. It's good to see you all. It's um, I'm actually quite excited that we're starting our series in Romans uh, today, and uh, we're going to be going through until next year sometime, with a little bit of a break in the middle. Uh, so we're going to go through uh, for a term and a bit. This time, looking at Romans chapter one through to eight, and then next year we're going to pick it up again and go 9 to 16. Can I um, encourage you, I don't know if you've ever been in the habit of reading entire books of the Bible in one hit. Uh, I've actually had the privilege, because I'm paid to do it, uh, to sit down and do that many times uh, over the last couple of weeks with the book of Romans. And you get a picture of uh, the book that is just much bigger than so often when we look at, like we're doing today, just 17 verses at the start. You get the big picture of what it is 
that Paul is trying to tell us, that what God is trying to tell us. So I'm going to encourage you maybe in the next week or so to set aside some time. It won't take you much more than about an hour uh, to read through uh, the book of Romans in its entirety. And that would be a very profitable thing to do. A couple of other bits and pieces. You've got a, a, a handout that I will have prepared. And in there, you'll actually find some room to write your notes, some questions that you can pick up either personally or in your family or in your growth group that is there. And they should appear each week. Uh, and then on the back, because I don't want to deal with all the different questions that might come up out of Romans, I've, um, I've put some for more information. So that's there for you. Uh, and that will be there pretty much each week as Romans will throw up lots of issues for us to consider. So uh, there are pens at the door if you needed to grab one as you came in. If you get up now, that's totally fine uh, and grab one. But uh, that is there for taking notes. Now, the other thing is, can I encourage you to bring your Bibles along? Because having Romans open uh, will be a very helpful thing uh, as we go through it. But why don't we pray and we'll dig into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for uh, this incredible book that lays out uh, with such exquisite detail uh, what it is that the Lord Jesus did and what that means for us. And Father, we ask that this morning and throughout this term, as we spend time in this book, uh, that you would strengthen us so that we would stand firm in that gospel of grace. And we thank you for this word and we ask that your spirit would be active this morning. Uh, challenging us, convicting us, changing us to be more like your son. And we pray this in his most precious name. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, I often find these days good news is actually in reasonably short supply. You turn on the radio, you watch the TV, uh, and there's not much that you think, hey, isn't that wonderful? Adelaide's had a little bit of a, uh, a bounce this week, haven't we? We got the subs, you know, the promise that they made to us years ago have actually been delivered. Isn't that good? And you know what? The Crows won and, and Port won. How good is that? You know, perfect trifecta. Both Adelaide's teams gets up and we get a $52 billion contract being built in Adelaide. But did you notice how quickly our political leaders backed off the good news? And they wanted to reassure us that this wasn't really going to answer all our issues. Uh, and so the good news came tinged with a bit of bad news. It's hard to find good news, isn't it? It's hard to find something that really jumps out, that really excites us. So often you are relegated to the back half of commercial TV stations uh, and uh, you get uh, exciting stories like new knitwear for your cat. <laughs> Can I just say, I totally get this cat. I totally get it. Or even better, you know, orphaned puppy fits perfectly into his feline foster family about a dog that's been adopted into a family of cats. How good is that? Why are puns and really bad dad jokes standard for good news? Or even better, the story of Huff, the vampire hedgehog, who is slaying it on Instagram. Again, another dad joke. Why is this the good news that excites our nation? Is this all there is? Huff, the hedgehog, and frog hats for your cat. Is that what you've got? 
What is it that actually means you'll hear news as good news? I'd like to suggest when you find that that news connects to your life, you will hear that news as good news. Hedgehogs make you smile. And, you know, the puppy has a home with his cat friends. Isn't that great? So excited about that. But I guarantee that that's not going to change your life. But when news connects to your life, then things change. Maybe you've had the experience of sitting in a doctor's surgery with the fear and the trepidation of that test result that you are waiting And the doctor smiles at you and says, it's good news. Now that is good news, yes? Or maybe you've been given all the bad news before and they say to you, actually, good news, there's something we can do about it. It connects with life. Now in Romans, Paul unpacks the good news and he gives us something that not just changes our life for a transient period of time, he gives us good news that has literally transformed the world. Paul introduces himself. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it's no serious scholar doubts the apostle Paul did write the letter to the Romans, a church, surprise, surprise, where? Rome. You guys are pretty smart. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, And he describes himself because he doesn't actually know these people. He hasn't met them. He's heard of them. They've heard of him. But he wants to get them on board for a mission trip that he wants to do to Spain. The moment that he's writing this, he's sitting in Greece, we think, near Corinth. And he's writing to them because he wants to go and preach the gospel, preach the good news of God in Spain. And he wants to use them as a kind of a springboard across into that western part of Europe with the gospel. And Paul introduces himself. And what does he want them to know about him? Firstly, he introduces himself as a slave. The New Testament uh, word here is translated slave. Because our Bibles come out of America mainly, they're a bit twitchy about slavery. uh, And so they'll often translate it as servant or bond servant. But the word here uh, means slave. It means someone who is owned. And Paul says he is owned by Christ Jesus. And not only is he owned by Jesus, he's owned for a particular purpose. He is called to be an apostle. Now, um, we've got, as I look around, we've got people doing all sorts of jobs. We've got students. Are there any apostles here this morning? There's no apostles here this morning, is there? What's an apostle? There's these cute birds up in the centre called apostle birds because they hang around in groups of about 12, you know, funny little ones. But an apostle is a simple term. If I said to um, Karen, uh, my lovely wife, if I said... Karen, will you go get me a drink, please? I'm sending her on an errand. She's an apostle. An apostle just means one that is sent. And what is the mission 
that Paul is sent for. Well, his mission is a bit bigger than get me a glass of water. He's prepared for it in Acts chapter 9 when he meets Jesus who commissions him. And Jesus describes his mission to Ananias, another Christian like this. He says that this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, that's the nations, and their kings, and to the people of Israel. So when you put Jews and Gentiles, basically that's everyone. And then he gets the privilege of verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The Apostle Paul is owned by Jesus, bought by Jesus, made to be, sent to be an apostle, an apostle who is going to proclaim the gospel of God, his name before the nations. You see it in there as well that Paul describes himself as someone who has been set apart for the gospel of God. His job as an apostle is to proclaim that gospel. And that gospel is the topic that Paul really unfolds, not just in this little bit, but throughout the letter as he lays it out in the opening chapters and then draws all the kind of implications out of it in the later chapters. What do we know about this gospel that he is set apart to proclaim? Well, obviously, it says there, it's the gospel of God. We jump over it sometimes, but we need to remind ourselves that God is the author of this gospel. He is the one who wrote it. He is the one who determines its content. And we have no right to change that message. This is something that in our culture we need to hear loud and clear because we have a situation where people aren't comfortable with the gospel. Churches, Christians aren't comfortable with the gospel. And so they feel that they need to just maybe tweak it a bit here, take a bit off there, change the emphasis around there to make it a little bit more palatable to ourselves, to the culture at large. But if the gospel is God's gospel, we have absolutely no right to change it. I think back uh, about 400 years since I was at school and you know those times when the, the teacher used to send you on message, message errands, maybe to the principal, to the front office, and you needed to tell the principal something. So you can imagine, maybe you've been in that situation yourself. As the teacher told you the, the, the message, you didn't then walk out of the classroom and say, oh, I'm just going to make up something entirely different and uh, tell the teacher whatever it is that I want them to tell. Did anyone, has anyone ever tried that? No, probably not. It's not what you do. I think back and I think, because I went to school in the days where they used to cane people, uh, nasty as that was, uh, bend over and look at the clock tower. Uh, but you didn't, you didn't want to mess with the message. You wanted to get it right. And so you would remember it and then you would relay it faithfully. And that is Paul's job, to proclaim not his gospel not someone else's gospel but God's gospel that's why in James chapter 3 verse 1 we're actually told that bible teachers whose job is to proclaim the gospel will actually be judged more harshly it's God's gospel he is its author but not only is he author he is the subject it's all about him 
It's, it's not about anyone else. It's actually about what God himself has done. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is God's great act of salvation. And first and foremost, it is about him. It has massive implications, can I say, for us, but it's actually not about us. It's about God. Look there in verse 5, if you've got your Bibles open, which I hope you have. He tells us there, Paul tells us, that he has received grace and apostleship to call to all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Why? Not so that they may be saved. Well, yes, they will be saved. But for his name's sake. The gospel proclamation, the gospel of God being proclaimed is actually declaring the great acts of God for his name's sake. It's actually God's message about what God has done for God's glory. It's not irrelevant to us, but it's not primarily about us. And the danger that we have in our modern age where we are very individualistic, is that we look at our, our culture, our world, our faith through the lens of me first, me at the centre. And what we actually do is we then tend to think about the gospel in terms of me at the centre. But we are not in the centre. God is at the centre and as, as he is, his glory is proclaimed, that we are blessed. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that. Otherwise, we will be accused, I think, rightly, perhaps, of stealing God's glory. The gospel is his message that he actually proclaimed, not just here, not just in the earthly life of the Lord Jesus, but he tells us way back throughout the Old Testament. So you have it there, it says in verse 2, it's the one that is pr promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament and he's not just talking about those really cool specific prophecies of Jesus that you can find like Isaiah 53 and 2 Samuel 7, Genesis 3, all those ones. He's talking about the big picture of what God is doing in the Old Testament. So if you go right back to the start, you see God's perfect creation, broken by human sin, coming rightly under the just judgment of God. And then throughout the Old Testament unfolds God's plan to bring blessing. He shadows it in Genesis chapter 12. He says there down the bottom to Abram, he says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people of earth will be blessed through you. All the nations will be blessing. The counter to the curse of God's right judgment on our rebellion is his promise of salvation that starts there in Genesis, and it unfolds throughout. And here, Paul is saying, this is the fulfillment of what God has been doing since the beginning. 
And then he gives us a bit more detail. He tells us that this gospel, this promised gospel, this promised gospel that he proclaims that's all about God, it's all about uh, what God has done, it is for God's glory, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us according to his birth that Jesus was a descendant of King David. Now, if you're taking notes, jot down 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. Go home, look it up, where God promises David that he will put one of his descendants on the throne forever over an eternal kingdom. Because in the Old Testament, you see the promise to bless, it goes to Abraham and then to Israel, the nation, and then down particularly to this particular person, this descendant of David, that got the title of Christ or Messiah. And here, Paul is saying, this, this Jesus is the promised Christ. But not only that, he's not just an earthly king. He is the one who that through his resurrection of the dead was appointed the son of God in power. No longer is Jesus the son of God in weakness, but he is the exalted, reigning, ascended king of all. Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This Messiah is the exalted king of all. And it is his gospel, it is his good news that is proclaimed. And it's really important that we get that. It's really important that at the start we see that because this gospel, it doesn't just underlie Romans, but if you are a Christian here today, your entire past, present and future is built upon this. And so that leads Paul to actually say a bit further down in chapter, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. How does it do that? For in the gospel, the righteousness or our righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's spend some time unpacking this. Paul is saying he's not ashamed of the gospel. If you read the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, you'll see there that he felt that people weren't always happy with the message of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His Jewish critics saw it as weak. You know, you preach a crucified Messiah. Who wants that? His Greek critics said it was stupid. The Jews wanted power. The Greeks wanted wisdom. But Paul says he proclaims Christ and him crucified. Why does he do that? Why should we do that? Because we go out into a world that looks at the gospel and says, that's stupid. Why would you, why would you believe that? We believe, as Paul believes, as all Christians believe, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How does it do that? It does that through giving us a righteousness from God. 
a righteousness from God that's not just something that rests in the head but changes the heart, that calls forth faith, that truly transforms life. Back in 1770, in the UK, there was a man called William Romain, uh, and uh, the UK at this time, uh, they were looking, they're having all sorts of social problems. Public morality had gone through the floor. Uh, if you know your history, uh, the American Revolution had kicked them. They could no longer send all their convicts across to the US. Uh, so they had to find somewhere else to dump them. Not here in South Australia, though, really, wasn't it? Now, all those eastern states, they've got the convicts, isn't it? So, uh, but England is plagued by social problems at this time. And they're looking for answers. And William Romain writes to Parliament and he requests money for the printing of gospel tracts. And at one level, you might think, and he was howled down at this point, you might think, what on earth is that going to achieve? But Romain noted something that history testifies to. That as hearts are changed by the gospel of grace, life is transformed, communities are transformed. Where revival goes through, where people turn to Christ with repentance and faith, crime rates plummet, social ills go. The impact of the gospel is massive. Why? Because it is powerful. It's not some random nice idea. It is something that connects with our deepest need when it is heard as good news. It connects with our need to actually be in relationship with our Father. It connects with our need to have our rebellion, our sin dealt with. And how does it do that? Well, Paul tells us it does that in verse 17 because it reveals a righteousness of God. Now, this word righteousness is a bit of a, it's a Bible word. I don't find too many talk, people talking to me in non-Christian circles of world out there. I don't find it in the newspapers or the righteousness of this person or that person or whatever. It's a Bible thing. So what's it actually mean? Well, the Bible uses it really in two different ways. One, it speaks of God's righteous character and his righteous acts. And that's saying he is upright, he's perfect. And so through his actions, his character is revealed. Okay? We tend to cut those two off at the moment. So uh, in our society, we often find excuses why we don't accept that our actions reveal our character. But the Bible does say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could actually say, out of the overflow of the heart, we act. Our true selves are revealed in our actions and God's true self is revealed in his great acts of justice and salvation. But that's not what Paul is actually talking about here. He's not saying that we see God as upright, as just, as holy. We do, but the amazing thing that impacts us is that he speaks of a righteousness that can come to us. Do you see it there? A righteousness that is by faith, a righteousness that brings salvation to everyone who believes, a righteousness that is a declaration that we are in right relationship 
with God. Now, this is massive because that right relationship is not because we are righteous in ourselves. It's because of what God has done, that perfect work of Christ, and that comes to us by faith. What he has done that is proclaimed in the gospel, we are told to believe, to trust, and it comes to us by faith. And it is a righteousness that achieves salvation. We deserve judgment. Christ took that judgment. And what do we get? We get salvation. We get vindication. And that is made available through faith in the gospel. Paul unpacks it in Philippians. He speaks of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul was a religious nut, we could say, uh, and he worked, worked his backside off to get right with God through doing all the right things. But he sees that that's worth nothing, that he couldn't achieve it. But he has a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not that our faith earns it, but our faith merely receives what God has done for us in Christ. That truth connects with our deepest need. Our deepest need is to be once again in a relationship of blessing, not judgment, with our God and Father, with our Creator. To be the people that he had made us to be. That is why Christ went to the cross. That is why he died, to pay that penalty that we owed. So that through faith in the gospel, we might receive the status of right, righteous before God. And that righteousness, when it is truly grasped by faith, it transforms life. Look in verse 5. He says, Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to what? To literally, can I say, the obedience of faith. It doesn't actually say the obedience that comes from faith. It actually says the obedience of faith. Now, that could be the obedience that flows out from faith. But it's important that we actually recognize that obedience and faith are not two separate things here. They are actually two sides of the one coin. That faith is seen in obedience. It doesn't mean that obedience is faith. Faith comes first. But true faith is fruitful faith. Now, I've got a quiz for you. Um, What kind of tree is this? How did you know? By its fruit. Oh, wow, you guys are so clever. Such a tricky thing. How do we see that faith is real? Jesus himself spoke of false teachers and says you'll know them by their fruit. You'll also know true teachers. You know true faith by its fruit. Real faith transforms life. James writes, some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. In our time, probably more, I have deeds, you have faith. No, you know, the thing is, they want to divide faith away. 
And James here says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Because real faith, as Martin Luther puts it, real faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. It doesn't lie idle. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. If there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. If your lemon tree never has lemons, there's something wrong with the tree. And after a while, you've got to doubt that it ever is a lemon tree. If it never produces lemons. Real faith overflows with what Paul talks about as the obedience of faith. That is there. And for Paul, particularly, that obedience is captured in this driving ambition to preach the gospel. He's massively concerned for those outside of the church. He has this burning desire, so he sets up churches. And you imagine, you know, Chris Edwards was part of the, led the planting team that planted this church. And then he left and but, but he hasn't planted another church, has he? You know, Paul planted church after church after church after church. He just kept on leaving them and doing it again and doing it again and doing it again. Six months here, 18 months there, three weeks there. Here he's writing from Corinth to Rome, planning a mission trip to Spain after he goes to Jerusalem. Why? Because he wants to hear, he wants to see people hear the gospel. At the Trinity Network of Churches, we haven't planted anywhere near the number of churches that Paul planted. But sometimes people say to us, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you keep on doing Why do you? Can't we just be comfortable? This is going well. Let's just work here. Brothers and sisters, we want to see by whatever means the gospel goes out. Because we, like Paul, as he says, he is indebted to the Greeks... And the non-Greeks, he's indebted to the wise and the foolish. He could say he's indebted to the men and the women. He's indebted to the adults and the children, the fat people, the thin people and the people in denial. He's, he's indebted to everyone. He has to put the gospel out there because that's his job. And brothers and sisters, that's our job. To get that gospel out as individuals, And as a church, to see that good news that the world is dying without. That news of blessing go out into all the nations, because that's what Jesus told us to do. But for Paul, it's not enough to tell someone who is not yet a Christian about the gospel. Because you see here in verse 15... He says he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, Paul didn't tell them to go and start a whole lot of evangelistic meetings that he was going to come in and be the gun speaker. Bring all your non-Christian friends to hear the gospel. No, he wants to preach the gospel to all the Christians who are in the church. Why? Because he wants to actually see them built up 
in the gospel. Like we looked at last week from Colossians chapter 2. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in him. Rooted down deep, built up, strong in the gospel. Overflowing with thankfulness. So for Paul... The people who are not yet Christians need to hear about the gospel. The people who are Christians need to hear about the gospel. And as we unpack Romans, we will see how Paul sees and presents the gospel as the thing, as the one thing, the one foundation upon which our entire life can be built. So brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning, and you are yet to put your faith in Christ, realise that the gospel calls for you to make a decision. Jesus isn't there waiting for you, just, oh yeah, I think Jesus is okay. He's asking you to build your life through faith on him, to trust in his perfect work. That is what you need. If you've got questions about Jesus, the life course is a brilliant opportunity to spend four evenings unpacking it. And if you need more, there's always more. Love to do that. But for those of us who are Christians, maybe for years, decades, brothers and sisters, hear that the gospel is just as relevant for you today and see as we unfold Romans how it permeates every aspect of our life how its implications reach into everything. Dig down deep into it. Let God, by his spirit, build you up strong. Rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.